Welcome to Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast. It is composed of clips taken from Jason's one-to-one and group mentorship sessions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Mentoring Moments. And I'm here on one of our one-to-one mentorship sessions with Elon Hurwitz. And we've had some really good chats, I think, already in a very short period of time. I think this is only our second session together. And you've come to the table with some really sharp, on-point questions that you push me. And I think that's a really good thing. I think anytime the mentee can challenge the mentor, that's a, I consider that a win. So you've always stretched me. And I think that's amazing. You've got some really good questions here. We talked about a few things off air, but I think there's also a few things that we've talked about that are so generically applicable to questions that the entire market is asking right now. I think I'd like to revisit a couple of those really quickly. And the first one that I'd like to revisit is that some merchants are having really massive challenges around international expansion where there is a scenario where they maybe have a distributor or a wholesaler that's working in another region to them. So that so there maybe they've got a D2C brand, but they also do wholesale. So they do B2B and they do D2C. So they in their home market, whether it's Australia, New Zealand, America, whatever it might be, they service their home market. Maybe it's through Shopify or Bitcom, whatever it is. And then they take on distributors in other markets where they're not strong yet. And we talked about what does that look like from you got to strike a balance between maintaining ownership of the brand and the brand experience in those markets, but also empowering those distributors and wholesalers to do a really good job of servicing their retailers, for example, or their D2C customers in their home markets. And so it's a delicate balance between letting them have complete free reign and saying, you can just buy the product, you can warehouse it locally, and however the fuck you market it is how you the fuck you market it. And I don't have a say in that, and it's all on your back. But then on the flip side, how can we make this more of a turnkey operation for those distributors to where they don't have to own on their own back all the distribution, all of the marketing, the performance marketing, all of the maintenance and updates of the website and all that sort of stuff. How can we make this a more turnkey exercise for those distributors? And that's a really big question for a lot of brands that are trying to expand internationally via B2B channels, right? And I said, there's kind of two ways to look at this. Either you can take a very hands-off approach and they own their own website. Now, where that makes the most sense is when they also are distributing or selling or manufacturing a whole bunch of the catalog themselves. So you're maybe 10, 20, 30% of their catalog, then in which case they want to own their own website. They don't want you, they don't want you touching their website. Now, if you supply 100% of their product and they really are pretty much an extension of your brand in market, that's a totally different proposition. And I think that latter scenario that I'm talking about is what you refer to, which is some of the clients you're talking to, they own the brand. They have distributors that only sell their product and nothing else. In that scenario, it makes a whole lot more sense. So let's say you're running Shopify. It makes a whole lot more sense to simply add an additional regional storefront to your Shopify set of stores. You have one code base that can then gets distributed out to your Shopify store. So they benefit from all of your CRO efforts and all of your marketing collateral and everything else. It becomes a lot easier for the central office, the home office, to maintain that across five, six, seven regional stores. And then they can make regional tweaks, regional adjustments if required. Now, when we talk about regional tweaks, we're talking about, for example, local price and inventory oftentimes needs to come from the distributor because they're the ones that's defining how much inventory they hold and what prices they charge in market. So sometimes that integration via API might come from their ERP. It might come from their PIM system. 
but allowing them API access to your storefront that you own, maintain, and pay for, that's easy. It's just a permission setting in the back end of Shopify. They now all of a sudden have an API key where they can update things like collections, they can, which they turn on and off themselves. They can update pricing. They can update inventory. They can update maybe, for example, some of the, the banner ads that they may want to run. But 90 plus percent of that still resides with the manufacturer's flash master distributor, right? And so I think for most brands, that's the easier way to go for their distributors and for them to maintain some level of control and consistency across the presentation of their brand and region. So does that, did that kind of resonate with what you were seeing as well? It did, and it completely aligns with the strategy when you're expanding internationally, there's a level of uncertainty for you and for the distributor. So how do you, in markets, how do you test markets where you don't have a distributor yet? You have this common code base, which allows you to launch a few ads, adjust some pricing and see what it's like. And then you might take that data to someone to say, would you like to distribute my product? Because look, there's demand in your market, but now we need local delivery. We need someone on the ground, but I'm going to make this easy for you because I have this tried and tested and proven framework, marketing, CRO, SEO, ads, this is all ready to go. In fact, I can get it live for you in two weeks. So it's easy for them. They're not thinking about this huge amount of work and cost. So you're more likely to get distributors on board because of this plug and play model. So all of a sudden, you're able to really get to new markets and prove the model and find partners in other models with the distribution model while still being able to focus on your core markets and what the head office owns completely end-to-end. So it completely ties in with what a lot of clients are trying to do where the challenge is it just feels too hard. How do I do this? How do I find the right partner? How do I leverage all this work I'm doing to drive ultimately demand and from customers in that market? And it just feels very hard. But the way you've explained it is there's the tech solution, which ultimately then works with someone locally or for yourself where yeah, you're actually focusing on the thing that customers are interested in and making it an easy experience. And the other sort of opportunity that we talked about was, well, if, if I'm only supplying 20% of their catalog and they've got their own catalog, they've got their own website, and I'm only supplying a certain amount of data, I'm supplying a certain amount of products, I'm supplying a certain amount of marketing collateral, then in that scenario, I think that there's two different approaches that I've seen merchants take successfully. One is to have a PIM system whereby the PIM system for your specific product range then integrates with their website to where when I release a new product or an updated product or whatever, it pushes into their website via API in a disabled state. The products are disabled, but it has all the images. It's got all the descriptions. It's got all the attributes. It's got all the things they need to go to market with those products if they want to. And then they choose which collections those products get assigned to. They, they choose which prices and inventory gets assigned to that. They choose when those products actually go live on their own website. I've seen that work really well too. And then the final thing I would say about this is that sometimes when brands go in market, they don't necessarily set up a storefront for that market. They will tease the market via maybe a local marketplace and maybe a local 3PL with a tiny amount of stock holding in market. So they'll sell on the local Amazon store or they'll sell on the local Mercado Libre or they'll sell on whatever trade me or whatever the local market is. They will distribute and sell through that local marketplace and then fulfill via a local 3PL. So they don't actually have to have an owned warehouse on the ground or even an owned distributor on the ground yet. So they will test and trial a market. And then once the demand is proven, then they can take on a distributor that can own their own warehousing, their own distribution, 
and their own margin. They can manage all that themselves. They can decide what the local market can bear in terms of local pricing. So there's a few different go-to-market plays here, but I think that owning the experience in market, if you are the primary, the primary owner of that brand and experience in market, it makes a hell of a lot of sense to get the economies of scale. For example, if I've already got five stores on Shopify Plus, I'm going to get a much better deal. If I go back to Shopify and I say, look, I want five more storefronts on Shopify Plus, it's not going to, because Shopify Plus tends to start at around the 2000 USD a month mark per storefront. But if I've already got five storefronts and I add five more, they're not going to, they're not going to charge me an extra $10,000 a month. They're going to negotiate exactly. because now I'm adding five more storefronts to an existing implementation. It becomes much, much easier for them to say, instead of 10 grand a month, we're going to charge you only five grand a month. We're going to only charge you $1,000 a storefront for an additional Shopify plus store. And I'm not speaking on behalf of Shopify here. I'm just saying, generically speaking, it's easier for these SaaS businesses to simply add a storefront to your existing account than it is to go and commercially negotiate with five different distributors in five different regions around the world and have five different Shopify accounts with them. So it just makes sense to take this low friction approach to getting live in new markets. Now, if we look at the next kind of key question there, what is your system for LinkedIn content creation and posting? Have you discovered any specific strategies that have proven effective timing, content type, commenting on others? Look, I guess every social platform out there, LinkedIn has gone through many iterations of its algo over the last seven years. since. So I started producing really regularly to LinkedIn seven years ago, almost to the day. And I've seen massive changes happen to the platform. I've even written articles on LinkedIn about the negative changes versus the positive changes. And the reality is they have recently, as in two months ago, made a massive change to their algorithm where they have flat out said that going viral on the platform is seen as a failure by their platform. So they don't actually want you to be successful on the platform. They want you to be marginally successful, but they don't want to be you to be hugely successful. They're trying, it's almost like a socialist approach to social. They want to see more people be moderately successful than having standouts at the top and, and people at the bottom that, that are basically getting no traction. They want everybody to fall in the fat middle to where they're all incentivized to produce and get a decent amount of traction. Where my average post, even six months ago, was getting 20,000 views like average per post. Now I'm lucky if I get five on average per post. Now, I haven't changed the way that I post. I haven't changed the quality of my content. I haven't changed anything. It's just as educational as it always was, but now I'm seeing this massive drop in reach. And all of my friends, who are some of them are very successful on LinkedIn, they're seeing a similar sort of a drop. And so I, I think that what I try to do is I simply try to produce the very best content I can at all times, regardless of how much business it may generate for me. I think of my audience and I think, what have I learned recently that they can learn from? What has entertained me that I think is going to entertain them? How can I up the production quality on average of the content that I'm putting out? So if it's a text piece of content, how can I make that as engaging as possible as a purely text-based piece of content? But I will say with LinkedIn, just like every other platform, you need to try and test and utilize every form and format of content that they support on their platform over time. And you need to mix it up so that not only does the algorithm not get dulled to the type of content you put out, but also to your audience. So they're seeing something different from you. So they're feeling something different from you over time. So it's something that's a bit more eye-catching instead of just scrolling past. And for me, I've really tried to get more consistent with my brand 
the halo brand over my content. So more consistent intros, more consistent outros, more consistent visuals to go along with my content. I've tried to make that more consistent over the last 12 months so that as they're scrolling through their feed, when they see a piece of content from me, they know, oh, that's Jason's, that's Jason's yeah. content. Oh, it's actually pretty good. I'm actually going to stop and I'm going to, I'm going to see that content because I like his content. So I think you've got to develop something that's quite uniquely you. And for the last six years prior to the last 12 months, I, I was a bit all over the show. I, I wouldn't say I was inconsistent. I'm consistent, but I didn't have a good quality brand wrapped around my content. And so therefore, I don't think my content necessarily stood out in the feed because I was doing different things all the time. Like the quality of the content was amazing. But in order to stand out in people's minds, you have to do something a little bit different. And so that's what I've tried to focus on. And I've tried to codify that. And I've now put that into a 13-step process that I've documented in the last couple of months. I've actually documented my content creation, production, and distribution process. It's now 13 steps combined with some sub-steps underneath each of those. And I've done that to make sure that I stay consistent with my own content. But I've also done it so that when I start to outsource that content eventually in terms of at least post-production and distribution, that is easy to hand over to a VA or an editor or something like that so that I can maintain the quality, but also maintain the scale. But I only was able to do that by doing that enough myself repetitively over and over again to document that process, document the tools, document the exact steps, document the titles, document the, the way in which I put a description around a video or the way that I, the way that I put a, a long description with specific emojis that relate to that content and just specific things like that. I want to stand out and I want to be a little bit unique. So the creative needs to come from me, but the branding wrapped around that needs to be standout. So that's where I've got to. And sometime probably within the next 12 months, I'll maybe outsource maybe half of those 13 steps. I'll still do all the interviews. I'll still think of all the questions. I'll still think of all the topics that I think are going to resonate with people that I know and love. But in terms of the grunt work of the production and distribution, I would like to offload that because that's, although I love it, I don't love it. it I, I don't see it as adding as much value as this kind of conversation. Yeah, that's so helpful. And really, the two weeks you've helped me with my LinkedIn. I think uh, on our last session, I mentioned I'm the guy with the notion file with all the post ideas. And you just need to get started. And after our last call, I committed and I've been posting every day for the last five days. And so it's just great to hear the, there is a framework there that you go and there's just levels as you progress. And ultimately at the core is what I want to be known for and what's different and what's my audience. Like you need to, to know that whatever level you're at. And then you just got to try stuff to see what works. So that's what I've been doing. And then when you find out what works, it's the feedback comes back and you learn more about your audience and what you want to be, what you want to be known for on that specific platform. And so that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And then you, yeah, I suppose you get to that point. Yeah, you can start to outsource some of that grunt work. I think, yeah, some of maybe the design work or things like that, where it's like what you're saying, who you're saying it to, and what makes you different is still there at the very core. But it's like, I just want to spend more time on coming up with interesting stuff rather than in Canva, figuring out the carousel, for example. Or in Camtasia and doing the final edits and the final yeah. cuts. And I think the final thing well, I would say about that, but sorry, you go ahead. I was just going to say, what do you use for posting? I've started using Caplio which I found really good. Yeah, so I used that for a couple of months and then I found that it, it, I just had to do too much editing 
in terms of like my voice, my style. And so I, I got rid of that. And now I do everything 100% myself as I always have. And so I do everything all the way from the capture to the distribution and everything in between. The other thing I would say is that it took me a long time to get to a place where I discovered what the umbrella pillar content would be that I then could chop up into repurposable content. And what I discovered was my podcast became my umbrella content. And then from there, especially once I moved from audio only, because I don't know of any audio clips that have gone viral, but I know lots of video clips that have. And so two months ago, I decided to start including video with my audio content. So I started distributing to YouTube. I started distributing to Rumble. I started distributing video uh, to Instagram and other channels that support video. And then I started slicing things up into short video as well, the likes of TikTok and Instagram stories and YouTube shorts. And what I found was, is that by creating this umbrella piece of content that maybe is an hour long, roughly, it makes it so much easier than to pull out the sub content that is redistributable across all these different channels. And other platforms, especially AI technology, has made this so much easier from a repurposing perspective. For example, I use Opus Clips to automatically generate from my long form videos the short form mobile clips that then I can upload to the likes of TikTok and, and YouTube. So there are some tooling, some tools nowadays that can make that creation of the repurposed content that makes that so much easier and it makes it so much faster and it makes it easier to add things like subtitles dynamically and to add emojis dynamically and things like that that are a little bit more engaging and so once i started adopting a few of those tools into my workflow it was like actually yeah video probably takes on average three to four times as long in total to edit and distribute as audio but the chance for that to make an impact is like 10 or 20x and sure maybe it's 3x effort but it's 10x or 20x return. And so for me, it's worthwhile to take that extra step and manage all the video components. And I've now created a bit of a, a streamlined process after doing it over and over again. Now I've created a process that I can more easily outsource. The final thing I would say is that I think you have to figure out a way that you can create content that you love enough that you can get past 20 episodes of a podcast or 30 episodes of a podcast. You have to create an environment where creating content is as easy as possible. So that master content, that headline content, that umbrella content is so easy to create that you just don't miss it. You would never not do it because it's so easy and it's so fun and it's so engaging. Like these conversations, for example, I love having these conversations, right? Yeah. I love this. And so for me, there's no chance that I wouldn't be able to create a mentoring moments episodes. And when I think, for example, of the B2B people that I'm having conversations with, I love and enjoy that so much. I love and enjoy those conversations. There's no chance I would miss an opportunity to have that conversation or a SaaS technology that can help my brothers and sisters in e-com. I love having those conversations so much, I would never miss out on an opportunity to have those conversations. So I think if you can figure out a way to create that opportunity combined with time-relevant opportunities that maybe, for example, yesterday when Shopify announced their chatbot, like that was just something that dropped into Twitter, the Twitter sphere. I saw it and I'm like, man, I need to make a comment on this straight away. Now, luckily that was on a day when I wasn't producing and distributing a, a, a podcast episode. So it meant that I could quickly record a quick clip. I could make commentary. I could do some quick 15 minutes of post-production and then boom, get it out. And sometimes just tailing on to relevant news makes it easy because people are going to be searching for that news. 
and I, when I checked, for example, when I checked YouTube and I YouTubed the, those queries all around that topic, almost no one had produced content around that topic yet. And I was like, how could nobody have been talking about this yet? And so I was like, man, if I get out there within the next hour, I'm going to be like one of the only videos out there talking about this. So you have to be a little bit opportunistic as well. Exactly. Your video stood out to me because I'm like, what's this all about? And all I could find was generic press release and Toby's video. And then I saw your video. I'm like, okay, so here's at least a perspective on what this looks like. And yeah, for anyone listening, I think I've just realized that posting on LinkedIn is like when it's something you're passionate about. I'm passionate about Australian D2C e-commerce and helping businesses grow. And so I get to research topics I love. It forces me to understand a topic properly because I need to be able to explain it to people. So I'm already winning, right, before I do that. And then on top of that, so I've got those wins already. And then on top of that, I'm, I know this is good for my personal brand and I get to meet new and I'm probably going to meet some really interesting new and interesting people. It's like all these wins coming out of it that I've realized, yeah, just getting started straight away and getting into it. I think a lot of people look at LinkedIn and they just, they don't, they don't, they look at it in different ways, but yeah, it's been really good. I felt that his agenda was super relevant to lots of different people in lots of different places within our industry. And I thought we'd just quickly go back through his agenda high level and really more than me regurgitating what I said to him in response to his questions was more to also get his feedback on how he feels my responses are applicable in the work that he's doing as a consultant. And when he's talking to clients, hey, how does this translate? What, how does what Jason is saying translate not only for me, but for my clients in the space? And so we'll just go rapid fire again through the, from beginning to end. What tools do you recommend for clients looking to quantify and assess their total addressable market and product market fit? My main response to this was, I see this time and time again, where merchants try to make their TAM too big as opposed to too small. They think, hey, if I have a broader audience, that means better, more potential clients. It means, hey, put more potential revenue. They actually have it around the wrong way. I believe in a land and expand approach. I believe in driving down your TAM to the narrowest possible market to begin with so that you can absolutely nail that market as best as possible. Make those customers as happy as possible. Extract as much penetration out of that tiny niche market as you can and then expand to adjacencies from there. How did that strike you when I said it that way, Elon? Because a lot of people, they go the opposite way. They say, we want to have the biggest TAM we can have as opposed to the tightest TAM that we can have. Yeah, I think it's a lot of people when launching your product, look at the big numbers and think, okay, if I just get a small percent of this, then I'm going to have a really successful business. But then the quote, which always comes up, if you can't try and appeal to everyone, you appeal to no one. So I like the reverse one on the question because it's who is your actual addressable market? Who is that person? And then look at the numbers. And that got into comfort because when you do that, then you're focusing on you need to make sure that you know you're comfortable and you need to do your business sense check that yeah, this is a good this is a good size to go after from a business case perspective. The demand exists, but instead of saying I'm just going to do sports pants, it's like I'm doing specific sports pants for people who go hiking or people who want to get out and exercise in winter when playing football. Now, when you think about it in that way, and force yourself to answer those questions, all sorts of things start to come up that are going to really appeal to that customer, which is going to make your marketing more effective, going to make your targeting more effective. And it actually got me thinking about, we talk about speed when growing, and that's important, but actually taking the slower approach and really focusing in on doing something really well. And when you do that, 
okay, you, and it's about classic marketing. You go with your early adopters. So let's just take the footballing example. They're going to love the product. You've spoken to them. They're going to use the product. They're going to talk about how great the product is. They're going to give you great reviews. You're going to do ads specifically for them, which are going to go really well, and you're going to know where to invest your dollars. And then that kind of sets your strong foundation. It also validates your product. And so you're not going off creating huge MOQs and all the rest of the investment that you need when you launch. You're really making sure you've got a great product that does a great job with the right people. And then you move into the scaling stage. And because of all that's in place, you can be more confident in your product, but also the things that sell the product, like social proof and really good ads, product expansion and things. Yeah, it was a good one because I see it a lot myself, actually, where people look at a Roy Morgan or a really big piece of customer research. I think the classic one is like you search on Google. People go, People search sports pants. Oh, look, there's 500 million people looking at this every week. I'm going to make so much money. But that your idea isn't in a vacuum. There's a lot of other people thinking the same thing. And so what's your unique thing that's really going to stand out? I think is a question that a lot of businesses really need to ask when they're coming up with ideas. And it's the classic case of even, let's say you're an employee and let's say you're spread too thin as an employee. That's the analogy that I use. You, you can be too spread too thin as an employee and you have too many responsibilities. You can do none of them well. You're a jack of all trades, master of none. And you can be the same thing as a brand. You can be spread so thin across your catalog that you can do none of those things super well. You can't do really good, solid new NPD, new product development. You can't do any of those things in a super informed way because you're spread so thin and we see this also even in the channels that that brands are trying to dominate they will try to do they'll try to do facebook they'll try to do google they'll try to do apple they'll try to do critio they'll try to do affiliate marketing they'll try to do email marketing they'll try to do sms they'll try to instagram and everywhere else and they will try to dominate every single one of these simultaneously both paid and organic and it's well like Like when you pull a lever in the business, how do you know which one has actually created the impact? Because you're spread so thin across so many both marketing and transactional channels. And then then on top of that, a lot of these brands are also trying to be transactional in marketplaces and across uh, transactional on social. So I I just think that any brand that spreads themselves too thin, it's like an employee that spread too thin. You can, you're basically setting yourself up for failure, just like a boss who spreads you too thin sets you up for failure in your role. It's exactly the same thing. Absolutely. That kind of touches on one of the other questions I had and some of the themes that this theme of prioritization. And yeah, I think if you look at all the biggest brands, all the successful D2C brands and uh, you did an analysis, you'd see they were laser focused uh, on a specific type of custom. I think you, you look at like True Classic or Obvi, you know, these guys, you can very clearly see. Supreme like or any of these ones that have been massively successful in a tight yeah, niche. Exactly. And now True Classic, though, is expanding their range and they've got yep. that permission to do that because and they've got the customer base to do that and the reviews on the quality and the operations to ship into all the things are there, but they couldn't have got there by just focusing only on great t-shirts for men. And that's it. That's all they did in an industry, by the way, which a lot of people would have gone, t-shirts, great, big tan, right? But they went, no, actually, t-shirts, a certain type of man who wants a certain type of fitting with a certain type of quality. And, and all their marketing led to that. And it's yeah, a huge, a huge success story. But I think one of the other questions was around, I had about Amazon and B2B. And you kind of gave me a lot of really good things to think about there because one touches on the spreading yourself too thin, but also having access to the right type of knowledge to test an idea because that's the challenge for a business owner is I know I shouldn't have shiny object syndrome or spread myself too thin. However, I don't want to miss an opportunity where if I just 
dip my toe in and test it, this could have been huge for me. And now I'm actually behind the eight ball and lost an opportunity. So I asked you about Amazon, which obviously comes up for all merchants. I think the feedback was good. It's like you can't just ch- chuck stuff in there. Okay, you've got to, and in particular, the way Amazon operates, you need to get it right the first time. And if you're going to do it properly, and if you want to do it properly, you're best to get expert advice, which is an interesting one for a lot of perhaps Australian listeners because there's a lot of people with expert advice in the US, right, <laughs> with Amazon, where we're still an early market for them. So do it properly up front with an expert if you are going to go into something like that or just don't maybe not do it at all and, and understand your business and like where the opportunities are and at least speaking to an expert as part of your assessment to go into that channel. So you're not going for the full investment, but you speak to someone who, yeah, I can at least help you with some of the research about your product to see if you could make this work and help you understand the margins and help you understand FBA. And that's not going to cost you very much and could either save you a lot or make you a lot more rather than because Amazon does allow that direct access. You put a whole lot of products in there the feed's not set up properly. Some of those things, like you don't know what you don't know. And I know in America, I think Amazon's 50% of delivery. Like it's their ecosystem. It's their world. Like you think you might've done it on Shopify. You think you might've done a Google. None of of it really actually, no, it's like Amazon's rules and they're going to do it certain ways and there's going to be algorithms that just block you. And there's people that can actually help you if you want to do that properly. So that was one. And tooling. And sorry to interrupt. The other thing was tooling. So there's some pretty specialized tooling. So Amazon provides you as a merchant, a tremendous amount of data, almost a fire hose of data, but organizing that, making it actionable, doing the analysis on it, presenting the reports back to the business in an actionable Mm -hmm. way that really requires dedicated special tooling that connects to the Amazon API. And I've had a few of those platforms, those specifically Amazon analytics platforms on my podcast before. I've had three or four of them on now. And there's also specialist Amazon PC management platforms as well. Some of them are both. Sometimes they're one, sometimes the other, sometimes they're both. But when you want to do Amazon, it's pretty low risk in Australia. If you want to list on the Iconic and try that if you're in fashion, if you want to list on Catch for a little bit and dip your toes in the water, that's fine. Dip your toes into eBay, that's fine. But with Amazon, because how you start out on their platform in terms of ratings and reviews, in terms of your performance under FBA, if you use FBA, your performance under the Prime Promise, if you subscribe to that, your your commitment to Amazon will determine from day one how well your account sits in good standing with Amazon and where you start to fit in relation to the buy box. And so therefore, if you don't do it well and right from the get and you get penalized by Amazon, it is so much harder to get out of the dog box with Amazon than it is to do it right in the first place. Like you said, it's better to spend a little bit more money up front to make sure that you're working with someone who can see around the Amazon corner. And for example, I'm not that person because I don't help people with Amazon because I am not an Amazon expert. I'm very open about the fact that I'm not an Amazon expert, but I have spoken to Amazon experts and oh my God, the amount of knowledge they have at helping merchants see around the Amazon corner is phenomenal. And in some cases, those guys have actually worked for Amazon. And so they have true insider knowledge because they used to be an employee of Amazon. And then they've gone out and started their own thing or they started their own platform or the consultancy, or now they're working as an employee with a brand on their Amazon channel. That is how difficult it is to do well on Amazon without getting into trouble. And so I think that for the brands that take a real softly approach with Amazon, like they would with other marketplaces, 
they can end up doing more damage to their account on Amazon than they even realize. And then at the end of the day, they're going to underperform on the channel and it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy because they don't do well on the channel. And they say, we're putting all this money into it, but it's not performing well. So let's pull off Amazon. Whereas if they actually did it right from day dot, the Amazon channel might actually be very successful for them. So I just think the Amazon channel is a super high risk, but also a super high reward channel. And you need to treat it as such would be my advice. Yeah, and I think you're spot on with finding the experts. It's no one's that expert at everything with people, with the, particularly with the speed of changes these days. Like, you, someone might say I'm an expert on Amazon last week. I mean, they're, yeah. if they're not working in Amazon every day, either on their own business or helping clients, uh, then what up, something's going to come out next week and you need to stay up to date on all the latest things. It applies to B2B, it applies to Shopify, whatever it is. Always looking at the full service agency and things like that and thinking actually, and that technical expertise, which is actually, and that practical knowledge and experience, which was the, the flip side of how could I test, how could it, the testing expanding to B2B? So the question was, the scenario is done well in D2C, probably not as well as I was doing during COVID or definitely not as well. I thought that was my strategy. I could see myself just growing that way. And all of a sudden, first off, people are back into physical retail. There's obviously challenges with the recession. Like I need to diversify. Yes. Um, I know I need to do that strategically, but I'm not sure where and I can make assumptions and, and do the research, but I won't actually know until I put something in front of customers. And so I think Amazon was a good example that we spoke about how one might go about doing that. But the other one was how might I start dipping my toe into B2B before investing in a full B2B tech stack where I'm able to actually do it at scale. And I think the advice was like just really quite practical, something I wasn't aware of was Unfair, which is um, a massive online wholesale marketplace where you can do that low risk, low cost, and just start to see if you can get a bit of traction, get some learnings, put some products up there, and that would allow you to then get some feedback on, okay, certain products, certain pricing, certain types of customers interested in your product. Because I think the mm-hmm. big thing as well when you diversify is cannibalization. So you're yes. also worried about if I go into this channel, whatever it is, am I going to annoy some existing retailer relationships with traditional ones and the DTC customer is going to price shop. But it sounds like something with fair is like you can do quite low volume, quite small, just to test things out without before you actually do something much bigger. A hundred percent. And then I, I also said that the ne- the second step is usually if somebody's already a strong D2C brand, they've got Shopify nailed, maybe they've got some D2C marketplaces nailed and they're doing pretty well. Maybe they're even doing some social selling and they're, they've got that pretty well nailed. Maybe they've even got some influencer relationships and they've got those nailed. Then if they want to get into the B2B space and they find some success with a marketplace like FAIR from a B2B perspective, then they don't have to go and immediately stand up a dedicated B2B e-commerce website. They can install on their existing high-performing domain and existing high-performing Shopify website. They can install a wholesale application like a Wholesale Gorilla or a Spark Layer or one of about 20 different wholesale apps that can sit on top of Shopify and help ease them into starting to offer, for example, quantity price breaks or dedicated price lists to their B2B customers or dedicated payment methods like on account for their B2B customers and some of those other things and be able to support a request for quote and simple things like that on their existing D2C play. Now, obviously, 
once they get to a certain level, they need to have a dedicated storefront because Shopify, even with an app, is still going to have some pretty severe B2B limitations. And you don't want to have to reorient your entire D2C experience to accommodate the B2B buyers, right? So you will eventually need to make that jump to a dedicated B2B experience. But I think in those very early stages of growth, as soon as you've proven that there's a market, maybe on something like FAIR, then the next sort of baby step is to offer some wholesale, some light, what I like to call light wholesale functionality mm. on your existing storefront, your D2C storefront. Then maybe in another six to 12 months, once that business has grown to the point where, oh God, our B2B customers now really need some really a dedicated experience for what they're expecting from us, then okay, cool. Now we can justify with a business case going out and spending the right money and the right time and the right effort getting our dedicated B2B e-commerce experience built out on a platform that is much, much better for it than Shopify. And by that point, you, if you don't already have something like a PIM, for example, you might realize, oh, geez, the product data that a marketplace wants is totally different to the data I need on my D2C site, which is totally different to the data I need on my B2B e-commerce website. And so maybe there's some other supplementary components in your tech stack that you need to start thinking about in tandem with a dedicated B2B e-commerce experience. And so you can go through that entire architectural thought process with, say, mm -hmm. for example, a consultant or somebody who's a specialist in the space who can help you roadmap out what that looks like from both an investment and time perspective over time. And so that way you don't get caught out with a whole bunch of technical debt and legacy technology and legacy architecture that are going to slow you down when you want to adopt these new channels. I have, a, I have to tie this back to a chat we had a couple of weeks ago, Jason, because there's like a common thread here around milestones and testing, testing new channels we've spoken about. We've talked about consumer-facing channels like Amazon. We've talked about completely new types of sales like B2B. And the one we spoke about a few weeks ago was new markets. And they're all common in the sense that businesses know they need to do it, but they're not sure where. And I think they need to speak to expert, whoever that is, on understanding what's possible from a technical and operational perspective so they can look at that roadmap and make the right investments based on the right feedback from the market. So being careful not to get caught up going, we're going B2B and getting pitched a 50 grand, 100 grand solution, which they don't read, they don't need right now and is not based on any feedback from the market on what's working. Uh, and it's, I think that's really, yeah, really key. Like looking at, like you explained, we just went through it there a little bit with wholesale, right? Fair first, then the app, then the full solution. And by the time you're looking at that dollar amount for the full solution, it becomes a no brainer. The business case would be stacking up. 100% could, could, yeah, couldn't yeah. agree more. You got to crawl before you walk before yeah. you run. And yeah. I'm, I'm as, I'm, a, look, I'm, I'm as much of an advocate for a, a sexy big B2B project yeah. as anybody because I love it. Yeah. But the reality is that most big bang projects fail. They have a horrible track record. These large scale, boil the ocean, build a project that's bigger than Ben-Hur. It might make the consultant feel good and it might make the agency feel good and might make everybody a whole lot of money but it's likely not to work for the merchant. And so I think that trying to work with someone who can help you filter the noise because they don't have a dog in the fight 
So trying to find someone who is as independent, like none of us are 100% independent, right? Even me, I have my favorite tech stacks because I know they work and I've worked with them many times before. I've integrated, I've helped people integrate with them multiple times before. So they're tried and tested. And so I have confidence and faith in those design patterns. So no one is 100% independent, but you need to find someone who is as independent as realistically possible to help you know what your options are. Like you said, I use the term see around corners, peek around the corner, right? If you work with an Amazon expert, for example, they're going to significantly de-risk your entry onto Amazon because they can see around corners based on their experience that you wouldn't, they will tell you things to look out for that you didn't even know were a potential problem. And that's the key. Yeah, I think as well, industry events and, and colleagues and getting and speaking to other owners. I was went to online retailer a few weeks ago and I had Budgie Smuggler and I was talking about going into France and they got caught out with some French HR tax laws. Just It's impossible. It's impossible to know that stuff. So speaking to people who've gone through it and expanded and what I think, and, and I think the e-commerce community is really open like that actually in Australia in particular and on LinkedIn. People are like quite willing to share information. So don't be afraid to, if you see like a similar business or someone who's been on your path before, reach out to them and say, hey, how did you guys do it? What worked well for you? And I think most often people are really happy to help out and share learnings. The, you make a very good point, which is that in all the conferences that I go to, the merchant to merchant roundtables mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. always the best sessions of yeah. the day or the multi yeah. multiple days, literally. Yeah. So when yeah. I get to sit and facilitate, because I oftentimes will act as a facilitator at the merchant-to-merchant sessions. And so you'll have maybe three or four merchants sitting around a round table, and there will be like maybe a topic on the table that they can gravitate to in the room. And it might be logistics, or it might be whatever. And I tell you, that collective hive mind of knowledge of even only three or four merchants, let alone the hundreds that are there, or let alone the thousands that are on LinkedIn or on other social platforms, uh, or on that appear on podcasts, etc. Mm. Like that hive mind of knowledge is so incredibly valuable that most of the merchants that attend those kind of sessions that I help facilitate and guide to make sure everybody gets a word in around the table, they will usually come up to me afterwards and they will say, that was such a fun session. session. I realized that this shit we're going through is not unique to us. Like it's, it's we're, we're, like it's hard for all of us. We have, we every single one of us have our own challenges and they might not be in exact same areas, but it makes us realize actually we're not doing too bloody bad. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's doing it hard. None of this yeah. is easy for any of us. Yes, it's not just the, it's not just the, yeah, business is successful and you see the Facebook posts and the LinkedIn yeah. posts and it's 100, 100%. Yeah. 10 years to, to build an overnight story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. T- 10 years to an overnight success. 100%. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Listen, Elon, yeah. it has been an, a joy again speaking with you. Like I said, you always come with a cracking agenda. We always get right down to business. We always dive straight into the questions and you're always on point. You always ask great follow-up questions. We go down the rabbit trail a little bit, but we don't get too deep into the weeds. So look, I think we've, we've struck a, a pretty good pace for our conversation. So I really appreciate it. I can't wait to speak to you again in a couple of weeks time, mate. If you'd like to get mentored by Jason for free, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click Get Mentored by Jason.